0: If you remember when we began our study of this letter of 1 Corinthians, we said the, that the Corinthian church had what we call a, a major dissonance problem. I know that may not be a word you've used much since then or heard much since then. But what we're saying is there's there's incongruity, there's a lack of harmony or a or a significant disconnect between, between who they are, that positional reality of who they are as Christians and how they're living, that practical speaking and thinking and behaving that we see in the church at Corinth. And, and so you, you can remember the background of this letter. Remember, Paul's instrumental in taking the gospel to Corinth and seeing a, a church begin there and, and start there in this, in this major city. And so he went on to spend uh, two years, about two years there, instructing and equipping this young church plant, and then he moved on. And he left behind this, this uh, growing church, and, and he left behind uh, leaders in that church who were, who were solid. But within just a few short years, as Paul's gone on to other ministries, um, he, gets, he starts getting reports uh, from the church at Corinth. And people are coming to him and, and telling him about really major problems there in the church. The, the, the wheels already seem to be coming off this, this young church. It's full of conflicts, uh, confusion, and corruption. Those three C's we talk about that all churches have to have to deal with. And so Paul Paul knows these people very well. Remember, he spent significant time with this church, and he knows the individuals in this church body, and he loves them very deeply. And so, what he when he hears these reports, he's he's deeply troubled. And concerned for them and for their well-being as a congregation. So he writes them this letter. There's actually a previous letter that he wrote, but this is the the first one that's given and recorded for us in scripture. And so he takes what he does, he takes all of these issues that have come to him, these questions and and reports that have come to him. He takes all of these different issues in the church there, divisions and pride and incest and lawsuits and other sexual sins and marriage, singleness questions, food. Uh, just theological confusion about gifts and, uh, and resurrection and all of these things. And he doesn't just tell them, dummies, stop. You know, just here's what you need to do. Do what I say. And he, and he just doesn't just kind of come at them that way. He doesn't just lay down a bunch of new rules and regulations, kind of a, a modern midrash, you know, which is what the, the scribes used to do with the, the Old Testament law. And they made all of these other layers of rules to explain every little situation and, and it became this long extended. He doesn't do that for the church and address every little specific question and, and, and issue that they're dealing with with this new set of rules. No, what does he do? He reframes everything in light of the gospel. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's this message of Christ crucified that, that he layers over everything that they're struggling with. It's the application of the gospel in the church and in their lives that's going to bring that dissonance, that disconnect back into harmony. And so he's essentially, what he's doing throughout this letter is he's calling these Corinthian believers, he's calling us, brothers and sisters, to live as we already are. With every issue he addresses in the letter, he does the same thing. And so I realize some of you are saying it's the same thing every week. It is, because that's what he's writing he points them back to Jesus and what he's done for them. And now who they are because of that. And then he exhorts them to live in light of that reality. Every time. And so he took the example, the first, first big issue that he dealt with was divisions. And what does he do? He doesn't just tell them to be nice to one another. You stay over there. And this is how you need to work through these things. What does he do? He says he, says he reminds them that Jesus died to make you One. He made you this this new spiritual temple together as a local church in Corinth and Baraka Bible Church. And he he made you this singular temple because of Christ and what he accomplished. And then he tells them to act like it. Live like it. put, put Put that positional reality into practice in the way you relate to one another, the way you think about one another, the way you talk to one another, your attitudes towards one another. And so Paul... Paul wants us, he wants us in this church, brothers and sisters, to, to think about every issue in life through the lens of the gospel. That's what we've been saying. And so even, even and especially we could say though the ugly, the real messy issues and matters like the one we're going to see today and we just read about it a moment ago, and, 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 and every aspect of life. And so just a little bit of historical context behind this passage uh, today. And so... Many of you, if if you know anything about, if you ever studied through the letters of First and Second Corinthians, you understand the, the the pagan culture in which these these believers were living, and so it was a normal part of of religion and life in the city of Corinth for men, in particular, to visit the temple of Aphrodite. And when they would go there, they would engage in sexual relations with the those who served in the temple there, men, women, and young boys. It's shocking, I know. I mean, so it's, but this is what Paul is getting at. And, and what Paul gets word, though, is that there are members of the church at Corinth, Christians, who are still visiting and still participating in these, in these activities. And even more shocking than that, they're actually rationalizing it and they're justifying their behavior. And they're even couching their excuses for this immorality and theological language. And it's very interesting, though, how Paul addresses this. Now, don't get me wrong at all. To be sure, he makes it crystal clear that this is horribly wrong. And this, is, and this has to stop. And so he says in verse 18, very plainly, flee, flee sexual immorality. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't, he's not stopping there and he, he's not just kind of topping the weeds off at the ground and chopping them off. No, what does he do? He gets under the surface and deals with the roots that are behind this behavior. And there, there's more going on in this pattern of behavior in this in this Christian uh, Corinthian church than simply, you know, weakness of the flesh. They just can't can't resist. That's it's more than that, this ugly, awful lifestyle that has deeper more fundamental foundations in the way that they're thinking and and Paul applies the gospel to those ways of thinking so as to undermine undermine them and so the behavior must change but it's more than what we Call it behavior modification. It's more than that. It's getting them to trust more deeply in the truth of Christ crucified so as to bring that dissonance back into harmony. To bring into alignment who they are in Christ and how they're going to now live. That's what he's, he's getting at. That's how he deals with this very thorny issue. So with all that said, let's, let's walk through the text here. And, and the main thing I want to focus on today and the thing that we're going to be looking at together over in, in the combined adult and youth Sunday school class for the next few weeks here is, is he's, he's dealing with their wrong view of the body. The body. And, and they had wrong views of freedom. We'll see that in verse 1. They had a wrong view of the body that, that ultimately led to this wrong view of sex and sexuality. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But in this highly promiscuous, sexualized culture, much like ours, brothers and sisters. We can't, we we gotta acknowledge that this is this is there's a lot of similarities. What does he do, though? He he I I think what he's doing here is he's anchoring the church. He's anchoring the church in these in, in what we'll see, these five fundamental basic truths about the body that keep them and that keep us from being blown around and being uprooted by our perverse culture. That's what we're going we're gonna to see this morning. So these five theological anchor points, or five, we could say, uh, doctrinal guy wires that, that keep us upright, that keep us secure when the sustained winds of our, of our sexualized culture are just constantly howling against us like they are today and like they were in the church at Corinth. So underneath their sexual sin... And one of the ways that they justified it, we see in verse, in verse uh, 12 there, excuse me, was their faulty understanding of Christian liberty. And, 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 and Pastor Dahl alluded to this. They had, they had a couple slogans that they, they used and these little mottos that they would quote often to, to justify and rationalize their sin. And one of them you see right there in verse 12. All things are lawful to me, for me. They say it two times, Paul quotes them twice here, in chapter 10, verse 23, he's going to do the same thing again. This was this was a mantra that they they had. This was, they loved to bang on this drum in the church. All things are lawful for me. And so they probably, where did they get this? From the pagan culture? They probably got it from Paul. Paul's this great preacher of Christian freedom and liberty. We know this. Paul made all kinds of statements just like this when When he he, uh, responded to the Jewish legalism that was so present in the church. And so you get in a passage like Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And so, so what they're saying is true. But it's incomplete. And it's unqualified. And it's certainly misapplied. And so you go on in Galatians 5. He says in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And the Corinthian church would be ready. Amen. Yes, that's it. But he goes on. What does he say? Only, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom is constrained by love. And then the Apostle Peter said similar things in chapter 2 verse 16, which some of the church in Corinth was influenced by him. He said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. But the Corinthians were doing just that. They were, they were, they were using their freedom as a cover-up for evil. They were distorting the fact that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. They, they, they took that to mean that now nothing is out of bounds now that we're redeemed. And that's just not the case. And so he says, verse 12, All things are lawful for me, this was their mantra, but all things are not helpful, or profitable, or... Beneficial, and that's not just individually, but, but to the community. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, enslaved by anything. So freedom, which is not helpful or profitable, but is actually harmful to others, it's out of bounds. And freedom, which becomes enslaving like the shackles of lust that they, that they find themselves in, it's, it's also it's way out of bounds. Now, we can't linger here, but just isn't it amazing how self-deceived we can be when, we, when, we, when it comes to the difference between freedom and bondage in our own day, in our own lives, brothers and sisters? We say, or maybe we think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things my way. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. And we fool ourselves into thinking that, this, that, 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 that that's liberty, when in reality, we're bonded, in bondage to something that we can't say no to. Whether it's greed or gluttony or pornography or gossip or addictions or on and on. These things, they promise freedom, but what do we find? We quickly lose control. And, and we become enslaved to, to those gratifications, that ravenous hunger of those gratifications that, that want to control us at all costs as we continue to give in to those desires. That's not freedom. It's not freedom. It's slavery. It says, all things are are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Okay, we could spend the whole morning and the whole message unpacking verse 12. We really could, but we have to keep moving. So there's there's another slogan that the Corinthians like to use to justify their self-indulgence. And you see it in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then it goes on. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now there's... Debate about whether that part is is Paul or whether he's still quoting them. I, I think there's 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 evidence that this this may be something that they were saying as well. So basically, they're saying hunger is a natural natural bodily appetite. So when you're eat or when you're hungry, eat. And, and they and they applied that same thinking to to sex, to justify their sin. And so they're saying sex is just a bodily appetite, has no real consequence. So when that urge is around, uh, urge is aroused satisfy it. It doesn't really matter how. And, and, and so, and, and then they have this idea of the body. I think this is what's being expressed. God will destroy both one and the other. This is this was part of that Greek way of thinking, that Gnostic, dualistic way of thinking that, that is pitting the physical against the spiritual. This was very common in that culture, and I think probably Eric will explore more of that. But Greeks thought the body was this, this kind of prison house for the soul. That's how they spoke body versus the spirit. The soul is all that really matters. The soul is pure. The soul, the spiritual part of of me, that's what matters. The body, it doesn't. The soul is like like the corn, the the good vegetable inside. The body is just the husk. And it's just to be discarded and destroyed one day, once its job is done, once once it's finished. And so they minimize the importance of the body, and they really blamed all of the problems, of their problems on the body, on the physical Part of who they are. And so what Paul identifies is there's this connection between the, the faulty devaluation of the body and this rampant sexual immorality in the church. If I haven't lost you, please just stick with me here. So, so these two are connected. They're, they're connected for them. They're connected for us in our own culture. And Paul's going to deal with their faulty view of the body very thoroughly here in these verses. And again, he, he's putting down, use that imagery, the, those five theological guy wires. Like, you know, one holds a telephone pole or, or a mast on a ship. Those, those wires that keep that up and anchored no matter what kind of winds come against it. And so he's, he doesn't want this church to be destroyed and blown over by, by that sexualized culture. And so he puts these guy wires down for them. These five foundational Christian doctrines and listen, brothers and sisters, grasping them will change how we think about our bodies. It will. And, and these will have far-reaching implications, not just, not just with regard to the specific problem at Corinth of sexual immorality, but and we'll explore some more of those, I think, in Sunday school class. And, and so make sure you're here. Don't, don't leave and stick around for, for the second hour uh, each week here because these are very important things for us to get. So Paul here, he's showing us how the gospel provides a completely different vision for the human body. All right, let's look look at these guy wires real quick. First, first guy wire is this, is your body is the Lord. Your body is the Lord. We have to understand this. Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So our bodies are designed by God, and they're formed by God, and and they are for God. That's what he's saying for His service, for His honor, for His glory. They're not just throwaway packaging for our spiritual souls that will last so, so that our bodies can just be kind of used for whatever purpose we want to use them. That's not the case at all. It's not just our souls that God cares about. He has made our bodies for Him. And He is for the body. Now that flies in the face, not just of the 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 Gnostic impulse that was so prominent in Corinth, but that flies in the face of most the way that most people think in our culture today, doesn't it? I know we think and we think, oh we have the opposite problem. You know, our culture carries too much about the body, you know, with diets and exercise, fitness and plastic surgery and all of these things. But that this it's the same problem. It's just a different expression. What I mean is those industries, they're not driven by by some kind of cultural gratitude to God for, for giving us these bodies and the desire to steward them really well. That's not what drives those industries. It, it is a, it is, they're driven by a way of thinking that says, basically, there's something my body's bad. And, and it's mine to do with it what I want. It doesn't really matter. And that's what drives those things. And so even as, even as Christians, let me just bring it a little closer to us, even as Christians, we have a hard time believing that our bodies really matter. This is not the the focus of of the Christian life. We tend to think of Christianity as either purely intellectual or, or some kind of abstractly spiritual realm. That's why we emphasize almost to the exclusion of other things. You know, we talk about spiritual disciplines as when we think about sanctification, that's where it all happens. And that's what really matters. It's the interior of the Christian life. That's what really God really cares about. The other stuff is not that important. But Paul, what does he do? He insists, no, it's it's what how we use our hands, how we use our eyes, how we use our mouths. Those things matter. They matter to God because the body is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We're not just bodies without souls, but we're also not just souls trapped in bodies. We're designed by God to be embodied souls. C.S. Lewis said it very simply like this. God likes matter. He invented it. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's what he's saying. And it's, it's God's good design to make us body-soul beings for him. That's the first guy wire we have to put down. So you, your body, brother and sister, in all of its frailty, in all of its weakness, in all of its uh, inadequacy, in all of its per, per, uh, imperfections, your body is for him. It's for him. It's not, it's not, in, the way, um, it's not in the way of a, a life that otherwise might glorify God. And if your body wasn't the way it was, then you could really, no. It's not meant to be used to secure the satisfaction and approval of other people. That's not why God gave you the body. It's not something that you can use however you want for your own sinful gratification. And it has no real consequences for your interior spiritual life. No. It's designed to honor the Lord. To please Him. To exalt Him. To give Him glory. You and I have bodies in order to glorify the Lord. Their body is for the Lord. All right, second guy wire is that your body is destined to be raised. Your your body is destined to be raised. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. So he just hits it and moves on. But what we see here is our bodies have this glorious future destiny. Not just our souls, but our, our bodies. The resurrection of our bodies is essential to our Christian hope. Remember, we did the series on the Apostles' Creed. We made much of this, and, and, and it was so counter to the way, even in the church today, we think. But this is, it, was, it was core to fundamental Christian doctrine. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Not, not just a spiritual resurrection, but our bodies. And so God will one day redeem all creation, including our bodies. Again, it also flies in the face of that, that pagan idea that the body is nothing. really doesn't matter. No, the, the body is not. Again, it's not simply husk that's that to be torn off and thrown away in the next life. No, the gospel proclaims that we are to be redeemed, spirit, soul, and body. Our future, future salvation, the, 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 what, what's going to happen when Christ returns, and all of these events that are coming, it's not to be understood as, as somehow an escape from the physical world where our souls are just flying to heaven or something like that. No, the resurrection of the body is an integral element in the Christian message. And again, I'm not sure we think about that very often. But the God who raised Jesus, is what he's saying, the God who raised Jesus bodily from the tomb on the third day, and he's going to make much of this in 1 Corinthians 15, he did so in order that Jesus, what, might be the firstborn from the dead. And one day he'll raise our bodies as well. And our bodies one day will be this mirror of the resurrection power of the risen Christ. We'll be raised like him. So the body, it's not a prison. It's not just a shell to house the soul. Our bodies are destined for eternity. And so Paul's point here is because our bodies have this glorious future, it, what we do with him in the present really does matter. Does if if we could learn to think about our bodies as bodies with a future, we would be much more careful about how we use them now. Now listen, our bodies are going to one day, when they're resurrected, they're going to be they're going to be qualitatively transformed. (laughs) Praise the Lord, and so so. But but they will be the bodies we have now. Just. With all of the effects of of the fall and of sin and all of that reversed and fitted for eternity, and so 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 if you if you deal with physical problems and pains and 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 and, and issues like that, or, or if you you know someone in your family, you've mental challenges, all oh, that's going to be gone. But the body is is going to be preserved, and it's that, it's that body that's going to be. Going to be raised without any of the genetic mutations and effects of sickness and injury and abuse and all of those things, but it's still going to be me, it's still going to be you. We'll recognize one another. I'm not going to be seven foot three with red hair. <laughs> I mean, I probably, will. hopefully, I'll have more hair. Uh, I think that's part of the fall. I, maybe I don't know. Um, but God gave us the body He wants us to have for all eternity again. All the true body problems will be reversed, but this is the body God made just for me and he made just for you. Now, I I know this is not the main road here, but let that truth settle in and help you. If you struggle with those real body image issues, you think that's the problem, the way your body is, that's not the problem. God gave you this body and it's gonna be yours for eternity. Thank him for it and use it, and it's intended to be used for the Lord now. And so Paul's main point here, though, is because because our bodies have this God-secured future, we we need to make sure we use them for their God-designed purpose. And that's his point. All right, third guy wire, quickly. Your body is united to Christ. Your body, if you're a believer, is united to Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Your bodies are members, not just your souls, not just your minds. Your, your bodies are members of Christ. They're united to Christ. That has all kinds of huge implications that we don't have time to explore right now. But look specifically how Paul traces the implications of that out and the specific challenges they're dealing with in Corinth. Verse 15, he goes on. Shall I then... Take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. And his answer is in the strong form, never, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so what does this say? In, 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 in light of the problems that they're dealing with, in light of the problems in our, own, in our own lives, in our own culture, the sexual union of two people involves more than physical contact. It isn't just a, a momentary act that satisfies some, some transient, you know, natural urge. This is the way the Corinthians claimed. This is the way they thought about the body, and it was wrong. This is the way so many in our own culture think about the body, and it's wrong. It's the way many of us think about the body, it's wrong. Now what does it do? Instead, it creates this mysterious but real and enduring union. And he quotes there Genesis 2.24. He doesn't mean that a man, if a man visits a prostitute, they're somehow married or something. That's not his point. What he's showing is the gravity of sin. You're joined. Regardless of what our society tells us, there's no such thing listen, as casual sex. Our, our, our hookup culture has this wrong. And I know the pressures. I know the language. I know the way people talk. It's so flippant, so glib about this. But it's it's just wrong. And, and in verse 17, Paul, Paul describes this. He, he brings this out and he says, our connection to Christ. And he, the way he describes it is with the same verb that he uses to describe this illicit connection the Corinthians had, many of them had, with prostitutes and he He says you're joined, glued together. That's the idea. He doesn't mean that in exactly the same way, but what he's saying is that both bonds are significant. And his point, how can a Christian who is is glued to Christ, this is that dissonance problem. How can you, you've, you've been glued, you've been bonded, you've been brought together, joined to Christ. How can you... And, and not just spiritually, no, soul and body. You are members of Christ. You've been joining him. How can you then just glibly join yourself to a prostitute? That's, that's, the, that's what he's driving at. So he gets to verse 18, and he can't control himself. He's, he gives this first imperative here. He says, flee. Flee sexual immorality. <laughs> flee it, please. Young people, old people, men. Women, those struggling with same-sex attraction, those, those who are attracted to the opposite sex, flee sexual immorality. He doesn't say resist it. He says flee from it. And, and the imperative here it carries this idea. It, it's not just, you know, like these one-time acts. He says make it your habit to be constantly fleeing from sexual immorality. That's the force of this verb. And then he says, why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin, it involves our whole selves, minds, hearts, bodies, as one writer puts it, because sex is uniquely body-joining. When we abuse it, it is also uniquely body-defiling. And so it's not that It's not that sexual sins are worse than other sins, in the sense that they make us guiltier before God than other sins, or or, you know, that there's this this kind of stigma. That that sadly the church is infected with this kind of thinking, but there is a differentiation. That sexual immorality in particular has has these terrible, damaging consequences. These kinds of sins that they carry consequences. That other sins don't. I think that's what he's getting at. That's what he means when the other sins are outside of the body, but sexual sins are against our own bodies. There are sins against our own person, own personhood. Even profound. They bring profound sense of guilt and shame and depression and self-destructive behavior. All kinds of horrible consequences: divorce and and health issues. And and so it's not uncommon. They, they, you, you you can see the studies. And they aren't Christians just common studies of how the brain gets rewired, just viewing pornography. And and these are sins against your own body. And so it's not uncommon for Christians who struggle with sexual sin to to be for those sins to be connected with apostasy, falling away. And what I mean is people who fall into sexual sin, they usually stop coming to church. And they begin to have doubts about whether or not Christianity is even true. This is a common pattern. I think this is some of what Paul has in mind here. And so, but, the, but this is the doctrinal truth we have. This is the guideline. So our body is for the Lord. Our body is destined for eternity. We have this resurrection hope. Third, our bodies are united to Christ as Christians. He's giving us these, these lines, these anchor points to keep us secure. What, so because of this, these realities, what we do with our bodies really does matter. And, then, and this brings us to the fourth guy wire. Is this, it's your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Or do you not know? Here's that that question that Paul loves to ask in this letter. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, this is incredible, isn't it? The help we need to stand strong in a highly sexualized culture It's not found in statistics or scare tactics. That's not it. No, the help we need is in cultivating a deep awareness of the presence of God. A genuine reverence for the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in us. In our embodied souls. Note again, we've seen this throughout this letter. And this is, again, bringing that dissonance back into harmony. He plies the gospel and, and he roots He roots this imperative in the indicative. So he moves again from indicative to imperative. He doesn't say keep your body holy so that God might give you his spirit. What does he say? Because the Holy Spirit already dwells in you. Keep your body from sexual sin. You are a temple. Now live like it. And remember back in chapter 3, verse 16, we've, we've seen this imagery already, this metaphor that Paul used. And there he spoke of the, the whole church, the local church at Corinth and, and every other local church. as the temple of God's spirit. Together we, we are that temple. But here he uses the same metaphor and he speaks of us individually. And he says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Not just your heart, soul, but your body, your, the whole, your whole person. The spirit of Christ inhabits you. All of you when you become a Christian. And that makes our bodies, as it were, sacred spaces. Is that how you think about your body? As a, as a sacred space, as 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 God Himself inhabiting you. Won't more fully grasping this reality. This just take this one alone. Won't that change how we think about our bodies and what we do with them? Now, on the one hand, it's incredibly challenging, isn't it? Because if you think, oh, if my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, I, 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 it's just it's rebuke to the way that we use our bodies. I mean, our eyes, our mouths, our, 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 our hands, our feet. And, but isn't it also deeply encouraging? I mean, because we're, we're, we aren't engaging in this conflict with the old life and de- battling these besetting sins. We're not doing this in our own energy and strength. If we were, we'd be hopeless. We'd be in big trouble. There'd be no hope for us making any progress in the Christian life against sin. But that's not the case. We're not left to our own internal resources. No, the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in us to give strength to us, not just to our thoughts and desires, our minds and our hearts, no, even to our bodies. And so our bodies, which are so often instruments of sin and disobedience, they, they can instead be instruments to bring b- glory to Jesus Christ because the spirit dwells within us. The spirit dwells in you, brothers and sisters, in you, in your body. Yes, I know the battle is fierce, it is fierce. We often stumble and fall. But because he dwells in us, there is hope for us. And he is at work to change us for his glory. Last Skywire, and we're done, is that your body was purchased, purchased at a price. He says at the end of verse 19, You are are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, if, if there's one defining idea for our generation, it's that of personal autonomy. We've taken the idea of the autonomous self to the infinite degree, it seems. That, that, so now we're, we're told a person can self identify however they please and in across in, in lines of gender and sexuality without regard to human anatomy. All right, that's just become common. And so a person is today whoever they determine themselves to be. We sort of invent ourselves, but that's not how Christians think of themselves. We are not our own, we don't belong to ourselves. We are not free to define ourselves however we please. We belong to Jesus Christ. He has purchased us. The imagery here comes from the slave markets of the ancient world. And so again, Paul, Paul said earlier that while we boast of our freedom, the truth is if we're engaged in sexual morality, we're that, that that's that's the last thing that's demonstrating liberty, it's it, liberty, it's demonstrating bondage and, and se- because sexual sin enslaves, but, but he's saying we who were, who are by nature slaves to sin. When we become Christians, we're we're brought into a different kind of slavery. Under a different kind of master. Jesus purchased us with his own blood at the cross. He didn't just purchase our souls. He, He bought our bodies from the slave market of sin. What he's saying, and under his rule, we, we find true freedom. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, Jesus says. And so we have been, we have been bought and brought into, this, into his household, and now we live under his loving mastery. This is what he's saying. We're not at liberty, then, to live as we please any longer. We're not at liberty to use our bodies, which have been purchased by the Lord, as if they're ours, to do with them what we want. Because what? Christ Gave up his liberty. He gave up his liberty. He he was enslaved. He was shackled as it were. And he was beaten. And he was crucified. He paid a terrible price for you. He bore the wrath of God for you. All the guilt of our sin. All the guilt of our sexual sin. Was paid in full by him. For you. So now. If you're a believer in Jesus. You Belong to him. Body and soul, through and through, you are his. And therefore, Paul can say, This is his conclusion: glorify God with your body. You you put you hang on to these guy wires and let them support you, and now you glorify God. With your body, no matter how corrupt the culture gets, no matter how far it moves and how the winds of, of perversion howl against you, you glorify God with your body. Now, as we said earlier, our, our physical bodies, they're, and this is what he's saying, our, our physical bodies are fully incorporated into the process of sanctification. Just as our bodies will be fully involved in future glorification. And so if we belong to Christ, we should serve him faithfully and consistently, not just in our thought life, not not just with our feelings, but with our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears and our tongues. What we do, what we say, where we go, what we watch, what we listen to, all of these things are to be done for his glory. And notice he doesn't just say, Forgive me, English folks. Don't not glorify God with your body. He doesn't use a double negative. But he says glorify God with your body. In other words, what I want you to say, don't just take this as a challenge to abstain. It is that. Take this as an invitation to enjoy. Worship God. Whatever you're doing, he'll say elsewhere. What are you eating or drinking? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Not in just some mystical, abstract sense, but in the physicality of life. Find enjoyment and pleasure in glorifying God with your body. I'm going to let Eric unpack that one more. And again, what do you see? You see that indicative. Christ purchasing us precedes the imperative, glorify God now in your bodies. We are not our own. We are not free to invent our standards. We are not to behave as moral free agents. We are bought with the price. Let me just close with this real quick. I heard this uh, in a message. It wasn't even this passage, but Tim Keller, uh, pastor of New York City, he, he tells a story of a young woman who came to him after church, and she was quite shaken. And and she, what what happened is, as he was preaching the gospel, she she had this sudden realization that if salvation is a free gift based entirely on what Jesus did for her then there's nothing that he could not ask of her. So if there's some contribution she can make of her own to her own salvation, kind of like we pay taxes to the government, we, we pay our dues, as it were, then we, we we're sort of we limit what's expected of us because we've already paid in. We've done our part already. But if, there's, if there was some contribution, she, this is what she came to realize, if there was some contribution that she could make or had made to her salvation she could have God paid off. Paid her dues, and he'd have to sort of leave her alone. There would be a limit to what he could ask of her. But listen, if it's all of grace, if it's all gift, if it's all been paid for in full by Christ, for her, on the cross, and suddenly it struck her, well then, there's no limit to what he could ask of me. She had been bought with a price, you see. Isn't that Paul's point here? You you don't belong to you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are his. He is in charge now. And So Paul's calling us then to, to bend our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, his loving lordship, believing that under his rule is where we find true liberty and true freedom. You are his, so therefore glorify God with your body. He has made you his own, and so let let the gospel, let the good news of what Jesus has done to make you his own bring that dissonance in your life back into harmony. Let me just say, I I, I realize in a passage like this, I, I understand there is not a soul in this room that doesn't probably struggle unless you're under a certain age with sexual sin in some way. And some of you are just enslaved to it. Some of, some of you no doubt are. And I, I would just say to you, there is hope. There is hope. And there is forgiveness. No matter how deep it's gotten, no matter what form it's taken, there is hope for the Corinthians. He doesn't come and say, expel these people that are visiting the temple prostitutes out of the church not how he comes and handles this situation married single young old heterosexual or homosexual desires visit whether you're a visitor here for the first time whether you're you've been a pastor here for 40 years it doesn't matter there is hope and I encourage you to talk to someone find if you're a young person talk to your parents um Men and women, open up with one another, with a trusted friend, believing friend, about these struggles and find help. Talk with one of the pastors, and we want to we help you. Let me pray. Lord, I, I do pray. I pray that you would, um, we, we, we feel constant um, pressure. Um, we, we, we are bombarded constantly with messages that are counter to the truth that we find in your word about the body and about sex and about freedom. And so Lord, we, we are more shaped by by those false ideas than we would like to admit in, our, in the way we think and the way that we live. And so Lord, but there is grace, there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is hope for change. and progress in the Christian life now and, and certainly hope for that final redemption of our bodies in the future. So I pray that these, these truths that we've been looking at today, they're set before us to give us hope, would do just that. and it would uh, and if there's anyone here who's just really, really struggling uh, in, in an acute way or enslaved to this or even just concerned with the trajectory that their life is headed, um, don't recognize it as, a, as the bondage that it may be. I uh, pray that we would reach out to one another and, and open up and, and, and help one another, walk alongside one another um, to, to bring one another to a, a better understanding of, of how you made the body to glorify you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.